looking at some of the answers to our culture. And today we want to look at the statement that our culture makes to us that you can't trust the Bible. For us, when we look at this book, it's, it's everything to us. It's where we get all that we know and believe is here. And, the, and we use this to base what we believe off of. But the world says, we don't necessarily believe that book and are trying desperately to discredit that book. And so I want to address that a little bit today. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the permanency of your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the present counsel it brings to us. We thank you, Lord, that as we look to your word, it becomes life to us. Scripture itself says that it's living and active. It's quick and it's powerful. And we are thankful today that your word has spoken to our hearts and our lives. And your word has changed us. We ask, Lord, that you would just today, Holy Spirit, teach us, open our eyes and our ears that we're not having a blind faith, but we have a faith that's counseled in the things of the Spirit. And we're walking after you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. I want to again thank Brian LaCroix for many of the thoughts that we'll uh, be speaking today, along with Josh McDowell and uh, Lee Strobel, if you know any of those names. Just uh, some great men who have been through some powerful times in their, their walk with the Lord. Could somebody turn the lights on for us? I, I, it just feels dim in here. The, uh, the round dimmer switches, if you would. And then I'll feel like I'm speaking to a bright crowd. <clears throat> Amen. How do we know the Bible's true? If somebody asked you that today, would you have enough ammunition to uh, address that statement? And can we really trust this book that has been translated only God knows how many times? And why was it translated? Why was it translated differently? Why why do you have so many versions of the Bible in your hand? And certainly if there's that many versions in your hands, then can you really trust this thing that's constantly shifting, as some would say? I believe that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, and it can be trusted completely. I would live and I will die for this book. It is a book that we can place and trust our lives upon, and I don't apologize for that view. Isaiah itself, in chapter 40 and verse 8, says this, that the grass withers and the flowers fall But the word of God stands, how long? The word of God stands forever. Do you know what the word forever means? That's right, Natalie, it means forever. She's a smart Bible quizzer. Matthew 24 and verse 35 says uh, not just the flowers and the, and the grass, but notice this. He, he, he does one up on Isaiah. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. This terrestrial ball that we wake up every morning and put plant our feet on and have this kind of just unaware sense of security in the fact that there's going to be something to walk on, that the Scripture says one day this ball will someday burn up, it'll be gone, it's going to be renewed, and the book of Revelation talks to us about that, that that's all going to happen, and that the heavens will melt like the firmament will melt And so that will change, this will change, but the Lord says, in the midst of all that change, don't miss the fact that his word will never fade away. It'll be there forever. Let's ask the question this morning, 
Is the Bible that we have accurate? Is the book that some of you are holding in your hands right now, is that an accurate book? Do you realize that for centuries there have been men and women who have viewed the Bible, have studied the Bible, have tried to find somewhere in these pages uh, flaws, mistakes, uh, indiscretions, uh, discrepancies of, of things that, that somehow are not lining up. And there are some that they grab hold of and they, they're such minute things and in their mind they make them big like, for example, in the, in the Gospels where one, one uh, Gospel writer will say that Jesus came and there was a demon-possessed man, and another Gospel writer says that there were two men there. And so they say, see, there's discrepancies in the, in the New Testament, and so you can't say that this is an infallible book if it does indeed have error in it. And, but they, they, don't, they, they take what, what they see with the eye, and they view it, and they don't try to study and find out what the deal is but the problem with something like that is you you try to find error to to base your wrong mindset on and in that particular case where we have one uh, gospel saying that there was a man who was demon possessed and another one saying there were two well the one man who was demon possessed was doing all the talking and so he's the one that uh, I believe was John, maybe Luke, I don't remember. John, one of those uh, writers of the gospel, he's just pointing out about this one person who uh, seems to be the voice of the crowd. And the other uh, gospel writer points out that there were indeed two men, but the issue was not the, how many there were, but the issue was that God was able to heal the demon-possessed man. And so we can look at, you know, and try to find these, indiscre- uh, these discrepancies throughout Scripture when in reality it is without error. We use the term inerrant when we talk about Scripture. That word inerrant simply means uh, that in its original autograph, the original manuscripts of the Bible, that it contains zero mistakes And we can say that with confidence, and we'll learn by the end of the day why we can say that with confidence, because this book that you and I hold in our hands has been recorded and written like no other book, with incredible accuracy, incredible detail, incredible uh, uh, time spent putting it together. First of all, Scripture tells us itself that it claims to be inspired by God, and it seems weird to use the book that we're in question of telling us and giving us the answers that we're looking for. Somehow that doesn't seem right. But we need to understand what this book is saying about itself so that we can build a foundation here. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses, uh, 2 Timothy 2, chapter 3 and verse 16 says that all Scripture, how many of the Scriptures? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. Teaching's great. It's also used for rebuking. We don't like that so much, but it's used for that. And it's used for correcting. We don't like that so much, but it's good for that. And it's good for training us in righteousness. So if we want to live rightly, we go to the book and it helps correct, rebuke, train, and teach us. And then 2 Peter chapter 1 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Speaking specifically about Old Testament prophecy, that it never had its will in the origin of man. In other words, that men didn't come up with these prophetic words. They didn't, they didn't have a piece of pizza one night, and in the middle of the night come up with, wake up and say, Hey, I'm going to give this cockamamie prophecy that's going to somehow uh, hold through, through hundreds and thousands of years. But prophecy never did had it and never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to understand the process there because this process in which Peter is talking about is really the foundation of why we have our word. That they were holy men, they were men of God who understood who God was. God spoke to them by the Holy Spirit and these words that were given to them carried them along and they eventually were able to write them and present them. So we need to understand that it wasn't some man saying, hey, this sounds like a good idea, I think I'll write this. But it was indeed the Godhead itself speaking to the heart of men and giving them the words to write. Interesting enough that God also loves to use the personalities of the individual writers. 
He uses their personalities and their styles and their upbringings. How many of you know God knows exactly who you are, and if he wants to use you one way, he's able to do that? In fact, God's able to use you one way that he'll never use me because you have gifts that I don't have. And such was the case in Scripture that God even used the personalities of those that were writing. The Old Testament claims that uh, around 3,800 times that uh, it's transmitting the words of God. How many know that's a lot of times to say that I'm transmitting what God says? Just in the Old Testament, that we have these prophets saying over and over again that I'm transmitting, that God spoke, that God said. And it's recorded 3,800 plus times. And then the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, confirm the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament saying God said. We have the New Testament, men in the New Testament saying, we believe what God said in the Old Testament. We confirm that what God said is accurate. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill, notice this, what the Lord had said through, here it is, pointing back to the Old Testament, what the Lord had said through the prophets. Here's the New Testament, thousands of years after the Old Testament, and the prophets are saying to those, uh, the, the, the apostles are saying in the New Testament, this is what was spoken of long ago in the Old Testament. He's taking, really, if you can picture a chord, they got a chord, and they're going, that which was spoken of long ago We're bringing it up right here. And now this is what's happening because the prophets prophesied it long ago. So it gives credibility to the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Scripture says, John writes this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. Believe me, if you start studying the plagues in the book, you don't want to add to this book. I can promise you that. Verse 19, and if anyone takes words away from this book of the prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which is described in this book. As bad as the, as bad as the plagues are, listen, this Last part, when you start adding to it, you don't want any part of that either. That means you spend an eternity without your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself even bears witness of the Scriptures. He says in Matthew 5, 18, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you the truth. Remember a few weeks ago I said it's interesting how many times Jesus said, I tell you the truth. I'm glad Jesus reminds us that he's not a liar. But Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's why Jesus was able to say, I don't know the day nor the hour when I'm, when, when I'm coming back because only the Father knows that. And once all of that, whatever the Father needs accomplished, is going to be accomplished, the Scripture tells us that it certainly isn't happening until the gospel is preached throughout all the earth. That there are still people groups that have not heard the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom. And so as that goes forth, we hasten that day. And there are missionaries going into some of the roughest and strangest parts of the world today preaching the gospel. And we ought to do our part to make sure they get there. You may never go to the bushes. You may never go to the deserts. You may never go to those rough places. But we can send people there and allow the Lord to hasten the day of his return. Luke 24 Verse 44, he said to them, this is Jesus again, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be filled, fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. This is Jesus. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying everything that was recorded about me in the Old Testament through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, these things got to happen. This, what, I'm, what I'm living, what I'm walking out with you right now, what is going on in my life was something that was prophesied a long time ago through the prophets, and it's happening now through me. Jesus is saying that to them. He said, hey, guys, hey, guys, just want you to know that everything written in the Old Testament is reality. And I'm making it happen right now. Everything you've studied over the years, your, your, the patriarchs, your forefathers, they have all studied the scriptures. They know all of this stuff. It is being fulfilled right now in your sight, right now in your ears. You're seeing and hearing me fulfill scripture. What was he doing? He was given credit. He was accrediting the Old Testament. He was saying what is there is true. Indeed, in fact, was from me, God. I spoke it into their hearts and the Holy Spirit caused them to write the words. 
So throughout Jesus' ministry, he bore witness to many persons and events in the Old Testament. And so doing, he authenticated everything that we know as the Old Testament. Normally, it would be, uh, not be a good rule of practice to have the writing in question be the source for proving its reliability. But when you see how accurate the Scriptures are, it becomes acceptable to us. When we see how accurately they have been written, we say, okay, well, there's, there is credit. I can use that book because it's an accurate book. There's not some uh, slipshod way of putting it together. So let's look at three questions about how the Bible came to us. Can we trust the copying process of Scripture? The original documents were written on materials that Obviously, over the years, it would deteriorate, much like the ones we have today in the paper, uh, unless we're doing cyber copying now. Um, but who knows, that might even somehow disappear. So how do we know that they were copied correctly? How do we know they were copied rightly? The process used by the Jewish scribes is an incredible process. Have you ever studied this? It's amazing, the, the process, the the. I mean, they put themselves through a scrutiny to make sure this is done right. They were not just meticulous, they were incredibly accurate. And they had a sense of reverence as they wrote the scriptures as well. Here are a few of the rules that the Jewish scribes would use as they're penning and copying the Torah, which is the Old Testament as we know it. Um, and, and number one, they could only use clean animals' uh, skins, both to write on or to bind. They would sometimes use um, uh, parts of the fur or parts of the uh, intestines or whatever to bind the materials together or sometimes to link pages of the scroll. The scroll would go so far and then they would put holes in it and link it and start the scroll and continue the scroll by doing that as well. So they can only use what they refer to as clean animals. They don't just go out and kill a possum and say, hey, throw them in there, we're going to write on them, you know. But they, they, had, they, had a, they had a whole process of making sure it's clean, making sure that that animal was to be used for writing Scripture. Now, you understand that their sense is that this is God speaking to us, and the Holy Spirit is upon us, and we're about to write something that the creator of the universe has put in our heart to write. So when we do this, there's a sense of holiness and a sense of reverence upon these scribes to write what indeed they're writing. Number two, each column of writing could have no less than 48 uh, digits and no more than 60 lines. So they had, they had this perimeters that they worked in, and every single scroll uh, I don't know about you, but when I, when I was in college, I would have these sentences that went on for pages. They would just go on for pages, and my wife would take my my uh, my term papers or whatever that I was writing reports, and she would redo them. And it took her longer to redo them than it did me to write them, you know, because all of the grammar issues, that grammar issues that were in there. Um, then the ink that they used wasn't just any old ink. They couldn't have colored ink of any kind. It had to be black ink, and it had to be ink that they made with a special recipe that these scribes used in putting all of these uh, different materials together to making sure that what they used was consistent with every scribe who was ever writing scriptures all used the same recipe of ink. Now this right up to this point seems like, well, that's not too, too big, not too fancy, not too surprising. Number four, they must say each word aloud while they're writing. How many of you write that way? Anybody write that way? Yeah, some, some of us still do that. We still write while we're, we kind of learned that in kindergarten. John threw the ball. We talk out loud. The scribes had to do that. They had to orally say what they're writing. Why? So that they could hear what indeed they were writing on Scripture. It was a combination of both of those, writing what the Holy Spirit was saying to them and saying it out loud. Fifthly, they must wipe the pen. Now catch this one. Wipe the pen and watch their, wash their entire bodies before writing the name of Yahweh, writing the name of God, every time they wrote it. Now imagine if that's several times in one sentence. And there's multiple occasions where that is true in the Old Testament, that the scribes would have to put down their pen, 
They would have to leave the manuscript. They'd have to go. They'd have to wash their whole bodies. They'd have to make sure the pen is clean. Then they would go back to that. And, and I've heard that they would only be able to write one letter of that name. I don't know how true this is. I haven't verified this, but I had heard this. They could only write one, name, one letter of the name Yahweh. They'd have to put the pen down, walk away from the table, go wash themselves, and the rest of the day do absolutely nothing, and the next day come back and write one more letter to that name Yahweh. That's how they viewed the holiness and the reverence of God's name. Is it any wonder that God says, don't take my name in vain? When this kind of reverence was put into just writing it on a piece of paper. There must be a, a review of within 30 days. And if, if as many as three pages required corrections in this manuscript, the entire manuscript had to be redone. Ken, is there any way for you to pull up a, a, a picture of a manuscript? Because the Jewish writing, if, if you know the Jewish writing, the Hebrew, Hebrew writing, it, it is incredibly, it's kind of artistic. It's incredibly detailed. It kind of reminds me a little bit like the, uh, the, the, the Japanese writing with all of the swirls and, and the thickness of the lines and all of that. It's amazing when you do it. Now imagine going through a, several pages of manuscripts and someone, another scribe, takes your manuscript, puts it down. He starts reading through it. He finds three mistakes and he says, sorry, buddy, this one's gone. How many know you get a little ruffled after that? I mean, we're talking about a lot, a lot of detailed work being put into this manuscript. Now, there are times when I'm typing on my computer, and I thank God for the computers because it, it puts that red line under it when you spelled it wrong. You click on, click on that red line, and it gives you the proper spelling, and it pops it in there for you, or the green line when it means that grammatically you did something incorrect here. I'm thankful for that. These guys didn't have that. And the other thing is, how many of you ever typed a manuscript on your computer and you lost it? How'd that make you feel? Uh, my staff knows how that makes me feel, because that's happened to me a few times. I'm like, somebody come in here, help me find this thing. Oh, man, I spent three days on this thing. It's gone. Now, look at that. Imagine writing that. I mean, this is just a small portion of a, of a major manuscript. Imagine writing that, how incredible that is. And worse than that, number seven, the letters, the words, and paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. If you saw my handwriting, there would be no manuscripts done by this scribe, I'm telling you. So if you make one little, you know, I got thinking about how did they stay so loose and so, how did they stay where they could actually, I mean, if, if I had these kind of, if I had this kind of structure that I was under, I'd feel like, I don't dare to write a letter. You know, how did, I, I got thinking about that, how did they stay so calm and actually write this stuff? And then the middle paragraph, the middle paragraph of that text, and the middle letter, they must correspond with the original document. So they would take the original, they place it over there, and they go, all right, 25 lines down, 25 lines up, that's the word. That's, okay, that, ah, oh, you messed up. The Y is supposed to be right there, and it's over here. Throw it away. Somebody say, ah. Oh. I, I, I can't, who in their right mind would want to be a scribe? I'm banging my head against the wall already. And then when the documents, because they were so sacred, they had to be stored in sacred places. And then as, even as they became old and started falling apart, um, no document, they felt, no document containing God's word could be destroyed, so they stored or buried them in, uh, again, a sacred tomb or a sacred place. And that's why when we found these Dead Sea Scrolls um, several hundred years ago, uh, when they found those, 
Um, and they pulled them out or whenever they found them. I don't remember what year it was when they found them. I just remember the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, when, when they pulled them out, they were in a cave, and, and the Jews at that point had been driven uh, and were persecuted severely, so they had gone in, into these caves in the mountains, and, and they stored them in these pots and, and tucked them away, and it was, became a sacred place for them. But generally, it was a, a place known to all the scribes that when the documents started getting old, they would go and actually have a ceremony of burying this sacred manuscript there. So there was a lot of care put into that. I, I, I would dare say to you that, most, uh, uh, that there is not a writer today that follows this kind of scrutiny in their writing. In writing the New Testament, there is more evidence for its reliability than for all the other ancient manuscripts written. Scholars generally, as they look at ancient writings, generally if there's 10 to 20 manuscripts of classical writings, they consider it a genuine work. In other words, 10 or 20, um, we'll, we'll say Pastor Steve was a scribe and we find 10 or 20 of his works, then it was, it was considered genuine because we had that many. I mean, that would be a lot. That would be fair enough evidence to say, okay, this is a genuine manuscript. And presently, there are at least 4,500 New Testament manuscripts. So the bottom line is, scholars say if you've got 10 or 20, then we consider it genuine. But the New Testament, we look at how many are there. There's 4,500. There's like, what he's saying is there's overwhelming evidence that these writings are indeed genuine. The nearest competitor to the New Testament is uh, Homer's Iliad. How many remember the Homer's Iliad back in the day? And there are about 640 copies 640s, that's the, that's the highest of manuscripts that they got in any writings other than the New Testament, 640. And the earliest copies we have of Iliad uh, date about 500 years, check this out, 500 years after its original writing. So the dating on the ones that we do have of Homer's Iliad, 500 years after Homer wrote those, and then we find them 500 years later, the ones that were written, uh, or they're actually dated 500 years after he originally wrote it. But in the New Testament, we have manuscripts that were written 25 years after their original writing. Now, why is that important? It's really important when we're talking about the New Testament, not just some... some uh, 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 fiction or nonfiction book, but we're talking about the Word of God here that has a lot of stories in it that for, for the unbeliever raise their eyebrows. I mean, the story of Jonah and the whale is kind of a little fishy, don't you think? The story of, uh, of the, the walls of Jericho, it's a, yeah, it's a little hard to get over. And, and we have lots of stories that we think, okay, God took a little fish and he took a few bread, uh, pieces of bread and he multiplies and feeds thousands of people and there's a bunch of, ah, come on. You know, so for the unbeliever, when we see that and hear that stuff, they say, wow, I just can't, I can't go there. But I want you to notice this. That 25 years after the original writing of these New Testament manuscripts, we have copies again. And it's important because um, those people who were eyewitnesses of what is written 25 years later, the copies, the manuscripts of what had occurred earlier, they're looking at this and they had the opportunity to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the way it happened. I don't know where you got that story from, but that didn't happen. So in other words, they had the opportunity to say, these manuscripts are incorrect. These stories you're telling are not true. I was there. I saw it 25 years afterwards. And you talk about like Homer's where it's 500 years. I mean, nobody knows what old Homer did back then. I mean, but these people could prove that what was written was indeed what it said. And they could dispute the information. There's, uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, Josh McDowell, he has a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, great, great read if you're still wrestling with, can I believe the Bible or not? And then Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee Strobel was a, uh, an atheist. He was a lawyer and a journalist. And he began to, um, his wife got saved. 
And boy, her life just radically changed. And he's watching this woman in his house and she's just acting so wonderful that he's kind of blown away by this. And he starts looking into this Christianity thing that he didn't believe and didn't believe in a God. He started looking into this Christianity stuff and because he's a lawyer and he's a journalist I mean he's all about facts 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 I'm going to find the facts I'm going to find out whether this is true or not and the more he looked at it there was such overwhelming evidence that indeed this Christianity thing and this God thing and this Jesus thing and this salvation thing really was real that this lawyer journalist gave his heart to the Lord and today is writing books to defend the faith isn't that awesome So when you honestly consider the facts, you can't deny that from a historical, not a hysterical, but a historical standpoint, the reliability and integrity of the New Testament is way beyond question. So how how did the Bible come together? That's a good question. How many books are there in the Bible? Sixty-six books in the Bible. That's a lot of different books. Now, I want you to just think about this thought for a moment. We've got 66 books written over a period of 15, 1,600 years. 44 different authors compiled in what we call the Bible. And there are no contradictions. Let me say it again. 44 different individual writers... A period over 15, 1,600 years, that's a long time. These guys would have never known each other. 66 different books. And yet there's continuity with all 66. You'd almost think there was a God behind such a manuscript, wouldn't you? It's kind of awesome. One of the charges leveled against the Bible, and especially the New Testament, that it was put together by a bunch of those old, white-haired, oppressive Christians who decided what would be included so that they could control the Christian church and the Christian people what they should or should not believe. That's the way the critics look at the Bible, especially the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament contains all the books and the writings of what is contained in the Hebrew Scriptures, and these had been held as authoritative Scriptures for centuries long before Jesus Christ ever came. In other words, the Hebrew people looked at what they called the Old Testament, uh, the Torah. They looked at that, and those were authoritative. They knew that those were spoken by God through prophets. And the New Testament... It was indeed a time when the church leaders came together to discuss the need for formalizing and deciding which writings would be included in the official collection of what we have today called the New Testament. And mainly because at, at that time they had teachings that the church used universally. They used these teachings of the New Testament, um, writings that were of their day. They used them, but there was never a collection of saying, okay, this, we know this is a manuscript from God. Uh, they, they believed certain ones, but then false teachers came in, and they started teaching error and things and writing their own books and, and not maybe uh, believing completely what the apostles had written and so uh, kind of tweaked their own things. And so there were so many coming in that the leaders of the church had got together and said, you know what, we've got to decide what the church is going to believe and what the church isn't going to believe. What we believe is spoken by God and what man is speaking. So indeed, a group, a council got together and decided to look at that issue and address it. And um, it's important to understand that they didn't necessarily decide which ones were going to be scriptures. They were just validating, indeed, what was scriptures. That's an important fact because it's not some guy saying, hey, I like that book. That should be in scriptures. It's got some cool stuff in there. That's good. Let's throw that one in there. But they looked at, with a a whole list, and I'll give that to you in a minute, a whole list of why and what fors of, to, in other words, a litany test to prove that, indeed, that was Scripture. 
And they put them together. So they were just simply validating what the Holy Spirit had already done in and through the hearts of men and through the pen of individuals. And so we come to this thing called the canonicity of Scripture. That word canon simply means a measuring rod or a, a ruler or a measuring stick. Uh, and it was their, their way of, of measuring each book to see if indeed it was able to be considered part of the New Testament. And there were five different um, test that they put it through. One was, the first one was the uh, apostolicity. Had to hesitate because it had a hard time with that all week. The apostolicity of Scripture. Now, the apostolicity of Scripture was, was the book written by an apostle or one who was closely associated with an apostle? Is this, is this someone we, we, with that name, that individual, do we recognize them as apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or were they so closely associated with them that they indeed would understand the teachings and be able to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit come upon them and and write the scriptures that way? The second one was uh, the spiritual content of it. That seems like a a no-brainer. You'd want to look at the spiritual content. Was it read in the churches and was it spiritually edifying to the church of that day? Did the church look at that book? Did the church use that book as a source of edification for themselves? Thirdly, doctrinal soundness. Again, it should have been a no-brainer. Any books with heresy or contradictions to those that were already accepted were rejected here. If they had any doctrinal issues in there, anything. I mean, 98% of the book might have been really good, but it has, I mean, this guy goes off on a harebrained idea somewhere. Here's a, ah, it's gone. It's not in here. That's not of God. Number four, usage. Was it widely used and quoted by the church? Number five, this is the kind of the test of all tests. This was the test that sealed the deal for the books. Was, did it have divine inspiration? Was it divinely inspired? This was the ultimate test. Did it, did it give true evidence of being inspired by God? Did God speak this to somebody's heart and write that? Is, is it just man's words or is this something that, wow, only God could say something that powerful? Don't you love when God speaks to you? And uh, these men were inspired by God to write these books. Now let's look at, aren't the stories of Jesus just legends? Because there are many today that would say these teachings that Jesus have, ah, they're just, they're just legends. They're just stories that the church used, but they're not necessarily real or right. Or, you know, it's a little, uh, little kind of fuzzy on the edges. There's no way you can believe that stuff. But there's no question that Jesus of Nazareth existed. And he lived during the time claimed by the New Testament, and he's mentioned in sources outside of the Bible, thank God. He's mentioned in some of the uh, writings of the day, and the actual fact that a historical Jesus of Nazareth has been established through multiple writings outside the Bible. So, we, we understand that, number one, Jesus was a real person who lived in a real time, and he was a real figure that people followed and listened to his teachings. And that's important uh, to say, because otherwise, if we can't uh, prove that Jesus was a real person, then, it, well, maybe he was. Maybe it was just one of those urban legends. But the main questions are centered on, when they're looking at Jesus' life, they're centered around his miracles, how many know Jesus did some pretty crazy miracles? How about that spitting in the ground stuff? Uh, King James calls it spittle. I like that word, spittle. Puts it in the guy's eyes and puts a finger in the guy's ear. And just strange, bizarre stuff. People are healed. But they also like to attack his death and resurrection. I was reading the story of his resurrection, death and resurrection the other day. And what, what's amazing to me is the, the rulers of that day, the Christian, the, well, uh, the religious rulers of the day, they said to the Roman uh, soldiers, hey, listen, before this guy died, they kept talking about him coming to life again. So we know the scoop here. We know what's going to happen. They're going to sneak into the tomb. They're going to take his body and get rid of it somewhere. And they're going to go, oh, look, the tomb's empty. He did. He came back to life again. And, and so, you know, the, the, the second state will be worse than the first. I mean, people really believe that he came from the dead. So this is what we need to do. We need to send soldiers to the tomb. And we need to make sure that that thing is is guarded and make sure that this hoax that these disciples are coming up with will never happen 
Now this is interesting to me because they're the ones that suggest this all happens. So they send soldiers to the tomb. The scripture says they sealed the tomb and they put guards at the tomb. Let me ask this question before we go too much further because this kind of caught me off guard the other day. Did, did Mary and Martha see Jesus come out of the tomb? You guys are all smarter than I am. All of our Easter programs, we see Jesus coming out of the tomb and it's a big, oh, kind of moment, you know. But when you read the scripture, we really don't have that happen. The scripture says an angel comes, he rolls the stone away, the ladies look in, and they see what? An empty tomb. They don't see Jesus sitting there going, dude, I'm so glad you opened that door, it's getting stuffy in here. They see an empty tomb. Jesus is already gone, which is kind of cool that he walked through rock. We know that's not impossible because later on he walks through a wall or a door. The disciples are all in a, in a room. The windows are closed and doors are closed because they're scared and they're sneaking around. And Jesus shows up and they all <gasps> oh, freak out. So we know he can, has, at this point, because of his glorified or body that is in some kind of whatever state it's in, is walking through walls and stone and all of that stuff. He said himself it wasn't quite yet glorified. In other words, he hadn't quite ascended to the Father. But interesting stuff. But where was I? Why did I go down that road? I don't know. But it was good. It was good. Why did I go? Somebody tell me why I went down that road. But they're talking, they're, they're questioning his miracles and, and, and all of that. And um, listen, if, if they can discredit the resurrection, then everything else they, they can discredit. The resurrection to the body of Christ is paramount importance. The resurrection to us is like the sealed deal. If there wasn't enough to believe Jesus all the way along, listen, if he said that in three days, I'm going to raise this body up again, and didn't do it, in spite of all the other miracles and the incredible things that he did, he'd still be a liar, and therefore not Lord. And so this resurrection is powerful. Not only is it powerful because of that fact, but it's powerful because it gives us hope that when this body dies, there is the hope of resurrection for us as well. As it was with him, so shall it be with us. So the question is, can we trust what the New Testament says about Jesus? First, they were generally eyewitness accounts, as we saw early. That goes into the test of putting New Testament books together. They were eyewitnesses of the accounts. Matthew and John were written by the apostles of the same name. Matthew wrote his book. John wrote his. Luke was written by an associate of the apostle Paul. And in the opening verse of Luke, Luke, as we, we talked about this a few weeks ago as well, Luke talks about how much detail he goes, says, man, I went through incredible pains to make sure I'm writing an accurate account for you. He makes sure he writes that. He wants the, write, the reader to know that I'm making sure I'm doing everything I can to make sure this is an accurate account for you. Then Mark was written by an associate of the apostle Peter. And these gospels came out during the lifetimes of not just the apostles, but during the lifetimes of those who could bring information that would discredit anything the apostles' account might say about Jesus Christ. Hey, I know you guys liked him and all, but that never happened. They weren't able to say that anywhere about any of the writings. In other words... Plenty of people could have come forward to refute the writing reports, the written reports of Jesus, and especially important when we look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did, did that really happen? Yeah, I was there. I was in the room when he stepped in. I saw the nail prints in his hands. I saw the hole in his side. I saw his feet. I know that was Jesus. He talked to us. We recognized Rabbi's voice. And secondly, the writers of the gospel and the rest of the New Testament were willing to die for what they wrote. Think about that for a minute. They were willing to die for what they wrote. I've written lots of sermons. And after 28 or so years of preaching, looking back, I, every once in a while I pull out my old sermons and I think, 
wow, I really preached that? That's terrible. I wouldn't die for that. Use that for fire starter or something. That's a terrible message. That's a terrible sermon. can't believe you preached that. I want you to know that the apostles, when they wrote this, these manuscripts, this New Testament writing, they were willing to die for what they wrote because they believed it that much. Now, that doesn't prove that they were true because they were willing to die for them. But I can tell you that no one will willingly die for what they know is not true. That's the other side. I mean, if I wrote a lie and you came and put a gun to my head and said, all right, is it true or is it a lie? Oh, all right, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, I was, just, I was just telling a tall tale. It's all good, put the gun away and walk away. But the disciples, penning about Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, said, you know what, you, you can kill me, it doesn't matter. I'm not changing one word that I wrote. The apostles would not have gone to their deaths at the hands of hateful people if they had merely written some kind of legend. And aside from this, there is much archaeological evidence that the New Testament was written was right on the money in describing geography and political leaders of its day. So there's a lot of historical evidence based inside of these books as well. What is it doing? Again, it's bringing what people say is legend right into the context of everyday life. Christianity is a reasonable faith, not a blind faith. We don't believe because of reason. We believe because of faith. But it's not a blind faith. By placing your trust in the Bible, you're, you're, you're merely recognizing that it can stand up to the scrutiny of reasonable people and some unreasonable people, including yourself. So read it for yourself. Check out the evidence. Go to the primary sources, the eyewitnesses, the accounts of those who lived with and loved Jesus so much that it cost them their very life. As we close out this morning, I want to ask you a question. Obviously, none of us in this room wrote anything to do with that book. The Holy Spirit didn't come on us and didn't inspire us to write Scripture. But are you willing to die for the Word of God? Are you willing to die for Jesus Christ? I don't know about you, but that's a haunting question to me all the time. And I know that in a short time, the way this world is headed, we we will be confronted with that question. Some of us in this room may be confronted with that question. Are you going to reject Jesus Christ or are you going to die? The disciples were willing to die some terrible, terrible deaths. Some didn't feel even worthy to be hung upright on a cross. I think it was Peter, I may be mistaken, but was hung upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be hung the same way that Jesus died. Beheaded and burned. They they died brutal, brutal deaths. That's a reality in America that you and I don't mess with very often. But there are people today around this globe, the persecuted church, who are dying for their faith by the hundreds, in some case thousands, because they refuse to believe a lie that Jesus Christ is not real. We have the book. We have the old, we have the new. I've just done a brief job at telling you how and why we can trust it. And I say to you today, where were you at on the pendulum? If someone was to ask you today, I'm going to kill your wife or your girlfriend or your son or your daughter in front of you if, unless you deny Jesus Christ. I hate to think that way. But it happens. 
Where are you at with that? It really boils down to this one question. Do I believe in and am I sold out to Jesus Christ? If you find yourself on this swale of I love God and oh I'm backsliding I'm going doing my own thing I love God and I'm swaling I'm going doing my own thing you probably need to question your loyalty to Jesus Christ. I think all of us in this room have those times. But if you're in the faith out of the faith in the faith out of, ah, 20 years from now I'll come back into the faith and the faith really doesn't mean much to you. The sacredness of what Jesus Christ went through, what the apostles went through, what the prophets went through to put together a manuscript, the Bible for us to live and believe in is incredible. And you and I owe a great debt of gratitude for what they've done for us. Would you stand with me this morning? Pastor Wiley, as you make your way, would you just uh, bow your heads with me this morning? Father, as we have heard this word today, we thank you for the reliability of Scripture. We thank you for everything that you have given us historically. We thank you for the way you moved hearts and lives and people to write the scriptures the way we have them today. And we confess to you today, Lord, we have a holy book in our midst and we don't often treat it as such. We look at the Hebrew children who at young ages up to age 12 have memorized the whole first five books of the Bible. It's amazing. And we become so slack, Lord, in loving and cherishing your word. God, would your Holy Spirit today just search our heart? Would you challenge us, quicken us to be more like you and to uh, be grateful for the book that you've given us called the Bible. You may receive glory and honor. Lord, help us to wrestle with that issue of where we are with our faith. Are we willing to die for our faith? It's a huge question. It demands a huge commitment. Bring us to that place where we're committed to you in such a way. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.